Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Richard, I think most listeners know from your very uh, professional radio accent. There's something underneath your American accent that sounds suspiciously English. Uh, Decades ago, you lived in England and decided to go back recently for a full month. Now you're home. I want to hear all about it. So I'm going to be on the hot seat, Jim, right? You're going to ask me some tough questions about big events and also what's about to happen. So... A few days from now, we will see the coronation of a new monarch for the first time in over 70 years. That's pretty amazing. And we'll touch on that later in the show. just heard the BBC on the hour pips, the roar of members of parliament, and a short flourish of land of hope and glory. All familiar sounds that make me think of England. I last lived there four decades ago. So in late March, I went back with my wife. We, we first lived together there in North London to see what's changed. And as As you'll hear, uh, the answer, like so many things, is somewhat nuanced. So, Richard, I really want to hear what you found on your trip. Uh, Let's start with some impressions. How did London seem to you today compared to the 1980s? What I came up with is that the city today is not as dark, not as smelly, not as poor. It's quieter. And, and more orderly than London was 40 years ago. And it's also much more racially mixed, especially the major cities in Britain. In many ways, it's more pleasant, but perhaps there's a little bit less character than there was when I lived there. And, and two examples of this, I went to a couple of soccer games or football as they call it in the rest of the world. And I went to one game in West London, the home of a struggling club, Queen's Park Rangers. The other was in uh, a North London neighborhood of Tottenham. 
at that stadium, White Hart Lane, where Tottenham Hotspurs play. You okay. really could not come up with a more British name than the Tottenham Hotspurs. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and and uh, that that stadium w- was completely rebuilt. They they uh, tore down the old one, put up this massive lump of, of steel and glass. The stadium now seats 62,000 people. And in sharp contrast with the football that I experienced decades ago, almost everybody has a seat to sit in. Uh, Football fans no longer stand in the terraces. And also in today's stadium, you you can go downstairs and get a gourmet meal. I mean, it's completely different. And I thought the crowd was more polite, a good deal less drunk, and of course, nobody's smoking cigarettes in public anymore. So, uh, you know, more orderly and and more of a family event, but uh, less raw and rough. Than it well, was. But at least you don't have the famous British football hooligans tearing up the seats and running riot. <laughs> That's right. You you do have some singing and a good deal of enthusiasm. People love this game, but no, it it wasn't quite as rowdy. So when you lived in Britain before, it was during the era of Maggie Thatcher and the country was going through a historic transformation, leaving behind some of the socialist experiment of the post-war era and opening up its economy to a more free market approach. Today, Britain is going through another big wrenching transformation, which is trying to figure out what its withdrawal from the European Union really means, the famous Brexit. And I'm kind of interested to hear how how it's going. How's the economy? What's going on? You know, it's been nearly seven years since Brexit, Jim. Um, and we started our podcast actually just before that Brexit vote. And Brexit came just four months before Donald Trump was elected in the U.S. And in Britain, it brought in a wave of populism with Prime Minister Boris Johnson's government, especially. And I think some of that's changed now. The economic result, I thought, would be worse than it was. I'm a critic of Brexit. I do think it's weakened the economy in some ways, but it's not the disaster that that I thought. For instance, one thing, I was in North London near another delightfully English-named place, Primrose Hill. And you go up Primrose Hill, and you can look out on the London skyline, and there are a remarkable number of cranes in both East London, near the city of London, and then in the West. So there's still a lot of building going on. There's still a good deal of growth. I didn't get the sense that the uh, the city in any way is decaying. Growth is supposed to be flat this year. Uh, a small recession is forecast for the coming months. And you compare this with Ireland, the other English-speaking country that's still a member of the EU, and the Irish economy is booming. It's growing at well over twice the European average. In fact, the Irish growth rate this year is projected to be as high as 8%. And and that's very different compared to the UK, which is now the only nation in the group of seven large industrial nations around the world that has yet to fully recover its lost output uh, during the COVID pandemic. So Brexit hasn't been a disaster, but uh, the Britain is still struggling with the results and the opinion polls 
do show a clear majority who feel that that the Brexit vote was a mistake. Let's talk about immigration a little bit. The, a fear mm-hmm. of a lot of uh, anti-Brexit observers was that we were seeing a spasm of right-wing populism and anti-immigrant sentiment and that the UK was going to shut itself off to uh, to the rest of the world in sort of a, a xenophobic way. What's going on today? Yeah, I think some of the Brexit vote was xenophobic, but we're not seeing the results of that currently. In fact, in the latest year, immigration in the UK is expected to be as high as it was before the Brexit vote, but it's just coming from different countries, Jim. The number of people coming in from the EU is way lower than it was before Brexit, but those people have been replaced by a big increase in immigration. The UK has been very uh, open to people coming in from Ukraine. There have also been changes in the rules on who can come in from Hong Kong, and there's been an increase in immigration from parts of Asia. But the immigrants who've come in, in many cases, are less skilled and the lack of EU citizens coming to Britain has had an impact on the economy, especially in construction and hospitality sectors, according to uh, what I've been reading. So uh, there is a shortage of, of some forms of skilled workers. But overall, no, uh, immigration continues at a, at a fairly brisk pace. Yeah, well, certainly from my point of view, I think it's great that they're opening up to uh, more immigration from Hong Kong, the former British colony. Britain surrendered, I guess it was a lease on Hong Kong in the 90s. And then China promised they would be hands off. They'd let Hong Kong have its its traditions of free speech and, and free assembly and a super free economy. But in the last few years, China's really cracked down and, and a lot of people want out. Exactly. China broke its promises and the whole position of Hong Kong is now really threatened. So let's talk a little bit about politics. Uh, the last time I was in London, I picked up a few papers. I, I had a, some time over breakfast to uh, see if I could catch up. And within 10 minutes, Richard, I was completely bewildered by what the hell was going on. There was some vote coming up on Brexit and some group was arguing this. And, some, and it was just mind blowing how complicated it was. I, I would wager most Americans would would be challenged to name the British prime minister. Back in the days of Boris Johnson, he was such a colorful figure and a natural comparison to Trump, although Trump couldn't quote uh, poetry in, in the original Greek, as I recall, the way Boris Johnson would do on occasion. But he was a flamboyant character is maybe more flash than substance, but there's a very different spirit. Now, tell us about what's going on. Politics is nothing like as colorful as it was during the Johnson era. The last election, Johnson won by a landslide, and he faced a very left-wing Labour Party leader. The Labour Party is the main opposition uh, movement in the UK. And Jeremy Corbyn was in charge. Jeremy Corbyn led the Labour Party and and was much criticized as, as a kind of almost like a Noam Chomsky lefty. He was a Marxist uh, and and now has been kicked out of the Parliamentary Labour Party. Corbyn's successor, Keir Starmer, is, is a pragmatist, considerably more moderate. And the same thing could be said of Rishi Sunak, the, the conservative prime minister. He's pulled the party 
to a friendlier stand with Europe, recently got uh, a very difficult agreement with the European Union over Northern Ireland through uh, the British Parliament and also the negotiations with the EU were successful on that. So uh, we have now two pragmatists leading the major parties, and neither of them are particularly uh, exciting as personalities, but both of them appear to be pretty competent. So there's been a huge change in the political landscape in the UK. Right. And Sunak is kind of a, a technocrat type, right? I mean, like all the leaders, I think he's Oxford educated, uh, if not Cambridge, one of the two, Oxbridge. But then he got an MBA at Stanford University. He spent some time working for Goldman Sachs, I think. So, you know, he's one of those kind of international elites that are much decried, but but also might be a moderating force on the some kind of wild populist surge in, in the conservative party. And the other thing of note is that he's the son of immigrants from India. And so there's there's that aspect to him. He's not as traditional in the way he looks as, as most uh, conservative politicians have been. I know. Isn't that, I think that's cool. One of the things that's really striking to me, Jim, about British politics is how European-centric it is compared to what you might think. Uh, most of the debates are still about the UK's relationship with Europe, uh, the uh, Europe is still uh, the UK's major trading partner. So this idea that somehow this would bring in a sort of Singapore on the Thames or Singapore on the on the Channel, um, I, th I think is pretty far fetched. It's clear to me that that over the coming years, uh, the UK is likely to get closer to the to the EU and, and rather than far away. But there are some some similarities. I mean, you do see the debates over populism and, uh, and and the criticism of metropolitan elites from more conservative people in uh, the shires, in the suburbs, as echoing the kind of debates we have here. There's also a cultural debate, a kind of a culture war going on in the UK that, that is in some ways similar to what we see in the US with, with arguments about various what some people call the kind of woke movement of, of kind of far left ideology in cultural areas like transgenderism and um, some pushback to that. What did you observe? I think there's more pushback. I think the debate is very much alive there. Uh, the whole transgender debate is still raging, but perhaps not at as fierce a level as it is in the United States. I didn't see, for instance, an entire political party, the conservatives in the UK, unlike the Republicans in the US, using transgender issues as a major plank in their uh political campaigning. I will say, though, that UK universities are dominated by the far left. And so you do see this kind of almost disconnect between the culture as a whole and then what's going on in places of higher education and even some nonprofits as well. Yeah, I think one area where uh, Americans might might be aware of this is in the incredible backlash against J.K. Rowling. As listeners might know, she has been critical of 
of one particular aspect of the trans movement. You know, people say she's transphobic, but in fact, she has a very focused concern, which is that in Britain, if someone self-identifies as female, they are entitled to say, if they're arrested, be put in a in a, a woman's prison. Even if it's someone who is accused or are convicted of rape, they can, right before being in prison, say, I'm I'm female. And there's no real way to challenge that claim. So there have been cases where women prisoners and women's prisons have been assaulted by other prisoners who are claiming to be transgender. This concern of J.K. Rowling has gotten her with a lot of trouble. I saw somebody on Twitter this morning call her a vituperative gigatroll who's the leader of a global transphobic cult. So she seems to be taking it in stride. But it does seem like the, as you say, on this issue in particular, Britain has pulled back from just automatically treating any child who shows up with gender dysphoria mm-hmm. with uh, hormones and, and, and other treatments and taking a little bit more of a conservative approach, a wait and see, let's make sure we get, right. we, we, you know, do plenty of counseling before we start injecting 14-year-olds with puberty blockers and stuff like that. And the British medical establishment and the National Health Service has actually reversed some of its earlier uh, ad- ad- advice on this and has become more cautious. And I I felt this reading the British press that we've reached peak woke in the UK, uh, if if not in the US. But, you know, one of the really big differences and where there aren't many parallels is the abortion debate, um, which isn't a huge debate in the UK the way it is in the United States. I mean, most abortions in England, Scotland and Wales Uh, can be carried out legally before 24 weeks with permission from two registered doctors. That's the 1968 law said. But one thing I think a lot of abortion supporters in the U.S. might be surprised to learn is that that prior to to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, Britain's rules were more restrictive than America's. You know, there are pro-abortion people in the U.S. who say that any restriction up to nine months is just absolutely inhumane and can't be allowed. And yet mo- the UK and most of Europe have rules that, that are quite a bit more restri- restrictive than, st- say, uh, New York State. That's the law there. And it's been settled law for, for many decades. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies with Jim Meggs. We're talking about the UK, how it's changed, how it hasn't, as well as the long and historic ties with the US. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's talk about <laughs> the, the Royals. I was in a, an airport newsstand yesterday. I still go to newsstands because I'm an old-time magazine guy. But the, the monthly magazine is partly a thing of the past today, the traditional monthly. And now a lot of publishers do these newsstand one-shots, almost like little like books that sit on the newsstand. And this one, maybe it was from Life magazine or somebody, and it it said King Charles the Third, you know, a, a special edition for the upcoming coronation of the former uh, Prince Charles. And I just thought, wow, I couldn't be less interested. Is there a lot of excitement over there for this uh, this upcoming coronation? It depends on who you ask. In towns outside of London, I saw quite a few decorations going up in store windows and elsewhere, and I think many people are quite excited, or at least they will be on the day. I mean, the coronation is going to be a great show on TV. The crowds will be huge along the route of the royal procession. People always love parties, and there are going to be lots of those in towns and cities across the country. You know, the media always plays up debate and controversy. But the problem for the royal opponents is who do you replace Charles with? I mean, he's been around for ages, probably knows more foreign leaders than any other single individual. He speaks several languages. And King Charles is probably Britain's most deeply skilled and important diplomat. And beyond that, there's this sense of tradition and the royal family really helping Britain to punch above its weight. So I've got a question. As someone who believes in the values of the Enlightenment, I think Britain's example of developing a democratic system that was focused on preserving individual rights underneath the canopy of a monarchy that was gradually but peacefully, mostly peacefully, stripped of its power over the centuries is just an incredible record, and it's changed the world, really. But what is the role of the monarchy today? Do they do they still need this sort of figurehead, historic remnant of the ancient system? I think one of the most remarkable things about Britain has been the slow and gradual retreat of the monarchy from playing an absolutely overwhelmingly dominant role to the role that it now plays. But I think that because it was a retreat rather than the result of a revolution, there's a feeling that the monarchy is part of what makes Britain special. Um, I went to Westminster Abbey when I was in uh, London, and it's a thousand years of tradition on public display. And I think there's a great deal of pride in that. And there would be a tremendous reluctance to tear down the monarchy when what it is doing is representing a sense of order that may have a calming influence on the the debates of the current hour that it's a symbol of pride for most people in Britain that they have a monarchy and they kind of like it, like a cup of tea. It's kind of cozy and comforting. And unless somebody comes along with a a much better idea to replace it, um, they're they're happy to carry on with it. And, And on a daily basis, and I don't think we see this at all because the news doesn't cover it, 
people who do good work, whether it's with charities or whether it's because they're members of the military who maybe lost a limb or, or had a severe injury in the service of their country, the royal family can have a strong role in honoring people who uh, deserve to be heard or at least recognized for their service. And we don't have anything quite like that in the U.S. It does have a nice positive impact. Is it huge? No. Is it reassuring? Yes, certainly it is. Well, you're sort of winning me over on this. You know, as a patriotic American, you know, I was kind of horrified during the Trump years to think of him representing our country, not just as somebody who's the political leader, but sort of the symbol of the country around the world and domestically. And that was kind of embarrassing. Uh, and then and then we have Biden. And to me, that's embarrassing in a different way. This kind of doddering old guy who's who's had a good run, but he's, you know, it's time for him to go off to the <laughs> assisted living facility and enjoy his remaining years, if you ask me. So having a symbolic uh, leader who can ha- can kind of take these ceremonial re- roles, yeah, maybe it's something to be said for that. Okay, Jim. Well, that brings us on to our recommendation. Well, Richard, I'm sure you've been soaking up all kinds of, of fascinating culture. What's your recommendation? Well, I have a bunch. Too many to mention in in this episode, but I am going to post some links on our website at howdowefixit.me and also mention them in our forthcoming newsletter. But my overall feeling after being away for a full month is that overseas travel really does widen our horizons and it gets us out of our bubble, not just mentally, but, but physically. But Jim, you have something new, which I'm pretty excited by your <laughs> suggestion, which is, and of course it would come from you, not from me, is not a recommendation, but an anti-recommendation. Exactly, exactly. So I'm sure most of our listeners have heard about this explosion in artificial intelligence interfaces that are accessible to regular people, the most popular being ChatGPT3, which comes from a company called OpenAI that Elon Musk was one of the founders of. He's no longer involved. And these are language learning systems that that have scanned massive databases of commentary and information online. And if you feed it a question, it'll give you an answer. You can even go to it and say, write me a story about a silly rabbit, and you'll get a few you know, paragraphs that look like they might be something that would appear in a children's book or, or something like that. So what's the problem with chat GPT? What's the hazard, the danger, the anti-recommendation you're talking about here? A lot of people lately have been talking about how th- these systems could be really, really useful for things like law firms to get briefs written more quickly, or doctors can rely on them to interact with patients in certain ways. Uh, even some journalists are saying, well, this is a handy tool to help with some of the research and help with writing up certain kind of routine parts of a of an article or other kinds of journalism. And I'm here to say I think that's a very dangerous practice because these systems 
are not like a, a, a search engine, not like Google, where it's looking for an original source and it's looking for the best source or a list of, of sources that you can go to to learn more about a topic. What it's doing is it's trying to figure out what would the internet say, most likely say about a certain topic. It is such a dangerous thing to rely on as a source. I'm working on a piece uh, for the Manhattan Institute right now about the movement of, of environmental justice. And, and I was looking at some of the leaders in the environmental justice movement and seeing what they'd written. There's some people in this movement who see environmental justice as part of an overall challenge to capitalism itself. So I asked ChatGPT to find me some articles written by some of the people who are on a committee that advises President Biden about this issue. And boom, 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 a long list of articles popped up from the, these different thinkers or, or leaders of different activist groups in this field. And they were from places like Vox and the New Republic and and different publications that it, they looked they looked completely plausible, plausible headlines, complete URLs. And you click on the URL. URLs it, being websites. Yes. I, and you click on the URL and it takes you to Vox, but there's no such article. The whole article, the headline, everything just made up. I mean. Wow. And every single article that it referenced was made up. People call these AI hallucinations, even though I was already very skeptical of of AI in this being used in this role, it was a real eye opener for me. And I think it's a warning for everybody that there is a chasm of difference between in a search function, which like Google is looking for sources and and has certain algorithms that try to find out if they're more authoritative sources uh, versus something that's looking to make up something that looks plausible. It's a very, very different thing. These AIs hide their sources. We don't know what their sources are. And I think that's what makes it so so tricky and potentially dangerous if misused. So we end our show with that uh, depressing note. <laughs> don't trust artificial intelligence and chat GPT. Be careful. Uh, be skeptical, as, as we so often are. In fact, it's a crucial part of how do we fix it. It's simply being skeptical. Yes, absolutely. So that's, <laughs> that's our secret sauce. I'm Richard Davis. And I'm Jim Meggs. And this is How Do We Fix It? Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and we're a production of Davies Content. Uh, we make podcasts for nonprofits, especially in the bridging space. Uh, take a look at our website, which is at howdowefixit.me. And thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 